0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. This psalm is Augustine's favorite psalm. In fact, as Augustine lay dying on his deathbed, he asked that people would come in and write above his bed, as he was laying there, that he would be able to look at the ceiling, and that they would write Psalm 32 above his bed... Because he said this, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And if I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become a Christian, every man must truly answer for the sake of true joy. Lying on his death, but even as we studied with William Cooper in Family Bible Hour, his sins were so pressing upon him and left so much guilt that he couldn't even see the forgiveness that was made at the cross. That's why Augustine said, I want that above my bed. I want this psalm above my bed. So as I'm about to step foot into eternity, I would be reminded yet again that my sins have been paid for in full once for all. We looked last week at Psalm 51 and we spoke frankly about sin as David spoke frankly about his sin. We don't really like to do that in our culture. We tend to label sin differently. We give it different names. Even we talked about David with Bathsheba that we would say he had an affair when it was sexual immorality. He committed adultery. For all intents and purposes, he raped her. We don't like to say what sin really is. We don't like to call it what it is. And in doing that, we do ourselves a great disservice. It's like the man who went to his pastor after a sermon and asked him, Please, pastor, don't speak so frankly about your sin. Don't tell us that we are sinners with such severity. Soften it up. Use milder terms. The preacher went to his cabinet. I have no idea why he had a bottle of rat poison in his study, but he did. And he pulled out the bottle of rat poison with the label on in front of it, the skull and crossbones, And he said, if I were to put another label on top of this, let's say the essence of peppermint. Have we changed the reality of what's in this bottle? No. In fact, what we have done is made this bottle even more dangerous because now you think it's okay. Now you think it's something that it's not. The milder you make the label of your own sin, the more dangerous you make that sin itself. David tried to manage his own sin. He tried to label his own sin. He tried so many different ways to do that. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we read of Nathan coming. 11 is uh, the sin that he committed, um, adultery, murder, covering it up. And then chapter twelve, Second 2 Samuel chapter 12 is Nathan coming to him saying, you are this man, you are the sinner. He repents right then and there. And write Psalm 51 very close to that to say, I have sinned and I have sinned against God and God alone. But I gave you on your discussion questions last week, I gave you Psalm 32. I really gave you two questions. The first question was, if David were to speak to you today, what would he say about his sin? What would he say about your life, about your sin, about how you are dealing with your sin? And then I asked you to read Psalm 32 in light of that question. And so I thought this morning we would take our time through Psalm 32 because really this is the answer to that question that I posed last week. If David were to speak to you this morning and address you this morning based on Psalm 51, based on 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, what would he say to you? I believe he would say Psalm 32 to you. I believe he would address us with this Psalm because this Psalm is what it looks like Once you have repented of your sin, confess your sin for what it is, what it looks like now to be living in the forgiveness that the Lord offers to you. So let's read it together and then we'll dive into it. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a maskil. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. God bless our time this morning, and may we learn to live in your forgiveness, anew, afresh, knowing without a shadow of a doubt your love for us because of Jesus, because of what he has done for us on the cross with his death, his resurrection, his intercessory work as our great high priest before the throne, even now, and the way that he will bring us to glory one day. May we trust in him and hope in him through this psalm because of this psalm. We pray in your name. Amen. As you can see, the superscription, it's a psalm of David, and it was written after. Most uh, commentators would say it's written after Psalm 51 because there's a, a huge difference in the tone. The tone of Psalm 51 is a sober, broken, contrite tone. The tone of Psalm 32 is one of joy. It's even a command in verse 11. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. David is writing after his sins have been forgiven, after he's written Psalm 51, and he says that this is a masculine. You see that word there in your superscription? A masculine. We don't know what that word really means. That's why we leave it as a transliterated word, right? You know transliterated words, hallelujah. That's a Hebrew word that we just kind of sound out phonetically with English sounds and English spellings. Mascul is a Hebrew word. You know another Hebrew word. You know Abba. You know all different kinds. Seraphim, cherubim, you know all different kinds of transliterated words. Mascul is another transliterated word. We don't really know what it means, so we leave it in its original Hebrew. But what does it mean? How can we tell? How can we get close to the meaning of it? If you drop down to verse 8, the closest word in the Hebrew next to mascul, the closest related word in family groupings of words, is the word in verse eight instruct? So we can say that the word masculine is really instruction. It's it's a kind of instruction. Uh, most people would say it's a poetic form of instruction. It's instruction through song. David is teaching and instructing us through this song. So we can really say this is a sermon. This is David preaching a sermon through song, and it's meant to be heard in such a way that we would live differently because of it. His introduction in his sermon is really verses 1 through 5, and then the main body of his sermon is 6 through 11. And as we go through this psalm, we're going to see three ways to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness. Really three disciplines, three disciplines that you and I must live out if we're to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness And discipline number one is found in verses one through five, and it is this. If we are to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness, we must, number one, allow guilt to do its job. We must allow guilt to do its job. David starts by saying, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered or atoned for. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, because of what I'm about to tell you, you can be blessed. He actually uses a word. We saw this earlier, uh, a year ago in Psalm chapter 1, how blessed is the man, um, Asher, or literally it's in the plural, Eshere, um the blessednesses of what it means to live in the glory and the joy of the Lord's forgiveness. You aren't just happy, you're filled with, Uh, The word is plural, happinesses. You are filled with blessednesses. They are overflowing to you through Christ. But the only one who can find the blessedness of being forgiven is the one who understands his sin for what it truly is. David uses three terms, three words for sin in verses 1 and 2. And these three words are so, so crucial and I think so helpful. So I want to take just a little bit of time And go through these words. First, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression, that's word number one, is forgiven, whose sin, that's word number two, is covered, and how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, that's word number three, iniquity. Deceit is also a sin, uh, at the end of verse two, in whose spirit there is no deceit, that's totally sin but it's not a word for sin that we're going to look at because really it's covering up those three things. It's covering up your transgressions. It's covering up your sin. It's covering up your iniquity. It's saying, I don't do those things. And David says, transgressions, my transgressions. What does it mean to transgress? It means to go beyond the law of God. It means to step outside of the boundaries of what, what God has said. God has said, you shall not murder. And to transgress is to murder. It's to go past Where God has said, go no further. Sin. Sin is kind of the opposite. Sin is, you guys know that the Greek word, right, from Romans 3.23, hamartia, missing the mark. So transgression is going beyond what God has told us to do. Sin is not hitting what God has told us to do. God has said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you and I have never done that fully. We can't do that fully. That's sin. That's missing the mark. It's not reaching where God has told us to reach. Iniquity, it's a word that means to twist or to distort. So you have transgression on the one hand is going beyond where God has said you can go. Sin, on the other hand, is not doing what God has told you to do. And iniquity is, if we can define it this way, it's doing what God has told us to do, but in the wrong way. An example of this is if my mom would say to me, Uh, she said this all the time when I was growing up. Um, can you please clean your room, clean your room? So what do I do with that? Uh, I just see instantly, this is going to take a lot of time and I don't want to take time on this. So what do I do, I just take all of the clothes that are on my floor and I scoop them up and I throw some of them under my bed. I put some of them on top of my bed. I throw the covers over it. I just kind of blow the dust around and say, boom, we're done. We're clean. Now, to me, I'm saying, I I cleaned your room, the, the room. I did exactly what you told me to do. And when she comes in, she looks at it, but not the way that I'm telling you to do it. This is not clean in my book. Or sometimes she would say, make your bed. And I would say, okay, I'm hearing make my bed. I'm translating that to clean my room. And so I would dust. I would do something that I don't even like doing, but I would dust something. I wouldn't make my bed. I would clean something else. And I would say, look at what I've done. Well, that's great that you cleaned that and you did it so well, but that's not what I asked you to do. That's iniquity. It's doing something, but not doing it the way that we've been told to do it. The reason why I bring those three points out, those three words, is because which are we, which do we tend to feel guilty over the easiest of those three? Which do we tend, when we do one of those three things, which do we tend instantly to feel guilty about? It's transgression, right? God told me not to do something, and I did it. I feel guilty instantly, right? Don't eat the fruit, Adam and Eve. I ate the fruit. I feel guilty instantly. Transgression is the easiest thing to feel guilty about. Sin, second easiest. It's a little bit harder because it's, you didn't make what God told you to do. You didn't get to where God told you to get to. It's a little bit easier to feel less guilty about that because we tend to think, well, but I tried my hardest, or that's a standard that's impossible to reach. So we, we don't feel as bad. We don't feel as guilty. Iniquity, it's very easy to not feel guilty about our iniquity because we're saying, I tried something, I did something. The reality is, the guilt that God gives us, God gives us the guilt. The guilt that God gives us when we sin is for our good. There are things that we obviously feel guilty about. And there are things that are a little bit less obvious to feel guilty about. And we need God to prod our hearts, to prick our conscience, and to help us, to make us feel guilty. For instance, there are times where I know absolutely nothing about cars. Um, I'll be driving, and this has happened a couple times in my car. There are times where I don't need anything on my dashboard to tell me something's wrong. I'll be driving, and if I see smoke coming from my hood, I don't need anybody to tell me something. I don't know anything about cars, but I know that's not supposed to be happening. So I pull over, pop the hood, look like I think I know what I'm doing. I'm always thinking that maybe somewhere between the last time my car has been broken and now there's going to be this little button that says, press me and everything will go better, and I can just press it. It's never there. And I look and I say, okay, what, what, what is this? I don't need a light to tell me something's wrong with my car, but... So, be honest here. Have you ever been driving and your check engine light comes on and you instantly freak out, right? My car is going to blow up. For me, this is the process I go through. I'm driving. My my check engine light goes on. I scream and I turn down my radio and I listen. Is there any sound that sounds like something's about to blow up? No, no sound. I feel the wheel. Nothing. Okay, everything seems fine. And I just kind of go, I can disregard the light, like I'll get it checked out when I get it checked out and I can just move on. The reality is, I believe that we, even as believers, we tend to do that with sin and with guilt. Sometimes our sin brings so much guilt upon us that it's like billowing smoke from the hood of our cars and we know I need to deal with this. Sometimes it's God that's pressing us with a check engine light saying, you need to deal with something. And we're kind of going, do I really? It's not affecting people. I'm okay. And God says, no, you need to deal with this now. A lot of people would like to not ever feel guilty ever again. A lot of people think that the feeling of guilt is a bad thing. Most people would say in evangelicalism that Satan is trying to make you feel bad. Now, does Satan want to make you feel bad? Absolutely. We'll talk more about that later. But God also wants to make you feel bad. When you have sinned, your guilt is a gift from God. It's like pain. Most people would say, I would love for pain to go away. And for maybe a couple seconds, that would be really nice. But if you could not feel pain, guess what you have? You have a disease called leprosy. You have a disease where your nerve endings have died, so you can't feel anything. So you go by a hot stove and you put your hand on it and you rest on it. And normally your brain will be communicated to by your hands and the, the nerves in your hands and go, excuse me, you need to stop touching this or else you're going to burn your hand off. And we say, you know what? I would love to not feel pain. No, no, no. If you could not feel pain, you would pay millions of dollars to go to a doctor to find a way to feel pain again. Because if you can't feel pain, what happens when you have leprosy? Your nose falls off, your fingers fall off. You, you die because you just keep running into things And damaging your body because you have no system to say you're in trouble. God has given us a gracious system to say you're in trouble. And it's guilt. That's why I say we need to allow guilt to do its job. We need to allow guilt to make us feel bad about what we've done and deal with our sin. We don't label sin differently. We need to call it what it is. The Bible says that sin is a foul stench in the nostrils of God Our sin is a repugnant offense against God. It's not just a whoops. It's not just an accident. Alexander McLaren says, You have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness of sin until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason. It's wishing that God were dead and we were on the throne. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blasphemy. Man calls it chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it an iniquity. Man calls it a luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake and God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. We must understand sin for what it truly is and allow the guilt that God has given to us to make us turn from our sin. What happens when you don't allow guilt to do its job? That's verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, this is David speaking. We looked at this last week with Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 11 and 12. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My sin affected how I feel. My groaning all day long, literally my bones wasted away, the, the inmost in part of me. Why? Why did I feel bad? Why? Because day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God was pressing him with guilt. God was pressing him to turn. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. God was saying, you have done what's wrong and you need to turn. And his hand of grace was bringing guilt to David so that he would turn from his sin. Sin affects how you feel. You can write down two passages, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Amnon, who is David's son, has a sister. Amnon's sister is Tamar, and Amnon thinks that his sister is beautiful and wants to have an incestuous relationship with her, so much so that his sin uh, makes him sick. It says he is physically sick because he wants something that he cannot have. Sin affects us. Normally, when we feel sick, we instantly go to, what did I eat? I think that we should also ask the question, is God trying to get my attention? Now, I know, I know that the Bible, in its completeness, in its entirety, Job would tell us this morning that when you are, in a a sense, when God's hand is heavy upon you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have sinned, right? That's, That's Job's friend's whole thing. You surely did something to deserve this. God says, no, he didn't. Um, so I, I want to be careful to say, if you're sick, don't instantly say, I must have sinned. Um, John 9, the man born blind. Who sinned, his parents or him, that he would be born this way? And Jesus says, it's nobody's sin. God did this. We need to be careful, though, to not instantly throw away. If we're feeling sick, if we're feeling angry, anxious, depressed, sorrowful, we must at least ask the question, God, are you trying to get my attention somehow? Somehow. Matthew 18, the other passage I would give you to write down. Matthew 18, you remember when the wicked servant is forgiven much, but then he goes out and he does not forgive his other debtor the way that God had forgiven him. And it says that when the master finds out, when the king finds out about it, he hands him over to the torturer's To be tortured until he understands his lesson, learns his lesson, pays everything back, and then is brought back. Most theologians would agree that that man is saved. That man's not an unbeliever in that parable. He is saved, but he is being disciplined by the tortures that God would give to bring guilt, to discipline this man so that he would come to a place of full repentance. That's what we need to do when we feel God's hand heavy upon us. And we see a word here, selah. Again, another transliterated word. It's a Hebrew word. You've learned a lot of Hebrew words this morning. What does it mean? Well, we don't know exactly what it means, but we know kind of like uh, a a sense of what it means. There's a family grouping of what it might mean. Um, Again, the closest word in the Hebrew in its family context is a word that means look up or stop and look up. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word for selah is dia salmos, dia through or in between, psalmos music, the song, through the song, in the middle of the song. Our word for that, dia salmos, is interlude. Um, so selah is an interlude, stop and look up. What that means to the people who are singing in the choir, if they see Selah, it's a musical note to say, you know what, there's an interlude. You don't have to have your eyes fixed on the music anymore. You can stop, you can look up, you're not going to be singing, the music will be playing. What's the point? The point is, it's a pause. It's a rest. It's saying, you have just heard something that before we move on, you need to think about it and deal with it. Why would David say it here at the end of verse 4? Because he's saying... The man whose transgression is forgiven, the person whose sin is covered is blessed. And if you do not allow guilt to do its job, if you try to throw guilt away, if you try to run away from God, kind of like Adam and Eve did, then God's hand will be heavy upon you. And what David is saying to us this morning is, check yourself. Before we move on, say "law." pause, stop, look up, take a rest, and check your own heart. Is God's hand heavy upon you? Are you living in the blessedness of being forgiven or are you dealing in your own life with unrepentant, unconfessed, and therefore unforgiven sin? Stop, rest, deal with God, and then we can move on. Then we can move on. He says, verse 5, after you've stopped to rest, many would come to the place where they would say, yes, God's hand is heavy on me. I don't think that I have confessed all of my sin. I think there are sins that I'm still harboring that I need to repent of. So David, what do I do? Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's the way to get rid of the guilt. You forgave it. You took it away. I love that word forgave. I will never forget that word. Um, in the Hebrew, uh, I'm a word association guy when I'm trying to memorize things. The word is NASA in the Hebrew N A S A, NASA. NASA. Uh, NASA shoots rockets up, and they always say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, lift off. That's what this word is NASA, lift off, to lift up, to take away, to carry a burden away. How do you get the guilt to be gone? You acknowledge your sin. And you call sin what it is. Confession, we looked at this last week with First John 1 John nine. Confession is literally, the word means to say the same as. It's calling sin what God calls sin. It's saying, yes, you are right. I have sinned. And look at what David does. I acknowledged my sin. He used that word in verse 1. I'm calling it what it is. My iniquity I didn't hide. He used that word in verse 2. And I will confess my transgressions. He used that word in verse 1. He's calling sin what it is. He's not making an excuse for it. He's not covering it up. And God forgives the guilt. He takes it away. Uh, much like Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian goes before the cross and the burden is taken away, lifted, gone, instantly, David says that's what has happened. God has removed it. Even as we sang, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken our sins from uh, Psalm 103. That's what God does. And that's what he loves to do. I love in Pilgrim's Progress, I'm rereading it right now. Christian stands before that massive demon, Apollyon. And Apollyon says, you've come from my territory, my land. I'm your king. You need to go back. You need to do what I'm telling you to do. He says, you're wearing different clothes. You're acting differently. You're talking differently. You are a citizen of my kingdom. Go back. And Christian says, no, I'm a citizen of a new kingdom. And my king is far better than you. And Apollyon says, does your king know the sins that you've committed on your way? trying to bring guilt back up, bring sin back up. Does he know what you've done? Will he take you once he knows? And Apollyon lists a couple of the things that Krishna had done on his way. And Christian says, yes, you know, to my own shame, those things are true. And then he says this, and there's a greater list, things that you don't even know that I've done that my king knows. But what you don't know about my king is that he loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. See, you think my sin is going to keep me from my king because you don't think my king will forgive me. What you don't know about my king is he loves to lift my burdens, to take my sin away, and to say, you are clean. You are clean. Again, David says, say, law." pause. If you have God's hand heavy upon you, if you feel guilt about any sin in your life then you need to do what verse 5 says. Do it now. Acknowledge this. Before we move on, acknowledge these things to God. Confess your transgressions, your sins, your iniquities, and God will remove the guilt. That's the introduction of David's sermon. Now he gets kind of the main point, the, the, the main body. This is his past life, right? This is what had happened previously of I have been covering my sin. I have been where I've stiff armed guilt. Then God's hand was heavy upon me. I acknowledged my sin. Now here I am before God forgiven. So now as that, as my introduction, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. And that's exactly what he does. If you're to live in God's forgiveness and the joy of his forgiveness, number one, you must allow guilt to do its job. And number two, in verses six through 10, you must act quickly in confession and repentance. You must act quickly in confession and repentance. Based on what I've done, based on who I am, based on my experience and who God is, therefore, verse 6, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Meaning what? There's a time when God cannot be found. There's a time when God cannot be found. Now, we don't have a, a set time. You know, if you sin... Two years after your sin, if it's still unrepentant, then God may not be found. We don't have a set time. That's why I want to be careful to say the only thing that I know with confidence about this timetable is that if you die apart from acknowledging your sin and trusting in Jesus alone to cover your sins, then your time has run out. It is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. So there is a time that we can know without a shadow of a doubt when God may not be found. And that is when you pass from this life into the next, apart from Christ, without a relationship with him, without having surrendered and acknowledged your sin to him and followed him as Lord and Savior. But I do think that there are other times in life where God may not be found. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 says pretty much the same thing. Isaiah 55, 6. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. There is a time when he may be found. There is a time when he might not be found. Kind of in the words of Paul and." First Timothy, there is a time when your conscience has been so seared that God stops crying out to you saying, turn, stop, turn, stop. And you are left in your sin. You've been turned over. You've been handed over. There's a time when you cannot find God in your unconfessed, unrepented sin. Turn to Isaiah chapter one. Just back a couple chapters here. Isaiah chapter one. Verse 18, Isaiah writes again, Come now and let us reason together. This is the Lord speaking. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. David's just echoing these truths. Turn now. Act quickly. Don't, don't put it off. Let guilt do its job and bring you to a place of confession. We talked about this last week where a lot of people think when they go to church, they have to clean themselves up. They say, I, I don't want to go because I have to deal with sin. I have to get things right before God, and then I will go. God says the exact opposite. Come to me dirty, and I will cleanse you. Don't clean yourself because if you try to clean yourself, you can't do it, and it's an abomination to me. So David says, run now, act quickly now in a time when he would be found. Back in Psalm 32, verse 6, surely, this is the second half of verse 6, surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. These are the waters, they could be the waters of God's discipline, more likely the waters of God's wrath. God protects you from himself as he hides you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Act quickly now. Deal with it now. I would encourage you to look up Second Corinthians chapter 7. It's a chapter that deals with repentance, what godly sorrow looks like as opposed to worldly sorrow. And one of the things that godly sorrow, a characteristic of godly sorrow, is earnestness. You're not lazy. You don't slack off about your sin. You say, you know what? I have sinned and I need to deal with this now. Why would we do that? Because First 1 John 1, nine, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Run today. David says, you are my hiding place. Verse 7, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And again, Selah. Are you running from God? This is another place where he pauses. Stop, look up. Are you running from God? Once you sin and God's guilt is heavy upon you, it's, it's as if you're on the clock. You have a timetable and the clock has started and the timer will run out and the flood of great waters will reach you and overtake you. So run, run into the hiding place where you are preserved from trouble. Run where you are surrounded with songs of deliverance. Run now. And the beauty is once you run to Jesus, It's not just that God is no longer against you. It's now that God is very much for you. Your relationship with God instantly changes. It changes from one where he stiff arms you. There is wrath between you and your creator because you have offended a holy God. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes that wrath. He bears away our penalty. He bears away our sin. He bears away our guilt and our shame. To offer us forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, he grants to us not just that wrath has been removed. But he grants us a right relationship with the God of the universe. Now he is not just not against us. He is for us. He is with us. And just to make that point emphatically, verse 8, something really amazing happens in this psalm. So far, David has been talking to everyone. He's been using what's called the second person plural. You all, right? Texans know it. it's y'all. Um, he's been speaking in that term, you all, when he says um, to us, this is what you're supposed to do. Let everyone, you all, verse 6, do this. Um, verse 8, it changes. Verse 8, it changes to the singular, second person singular. He, it's It's God taking the pen. My Bible actually says... It capitalizes the M in verse 8. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And I think that's correct because God is taking the pen from David's hand, as it were, to say, you know what, let me let these people know the other blessing that they get in forgiven sin. David, you've told them. David said, you all need to know this. God is your hiding place. God will preserve you. Run to him. And God says, let me take the pen, as it were. And I want to tell them another blessing of walking in my forgiveness. I will instruct you. He will look after you singularly. He will take care of you individually. And He will teach you in the way you should go. You obviously did not go the way you should have gone. That's why you had sin. That's why you had guilt. And that's why you needed forgiveness. And now God says, if you run to me for forgiveness, I will teach you how you should go. I will not only give you protection, I will give you direction. I will be with you. I will let you know where you're supposed to go. I will counsel you, and my eye will always be upon you. Run to me. Run to me, and I will do that for you. Verse 9, David takes the pen back, God kind of gives it back to him, and he goes back, do not you all, second person plural, do not you all, Be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Listen to how God will care for you, and here's what you must do. Don't be like a mule, like a a horse. There's a, a beautiful imagery here. It's as if, There's a mule that's standing outside in in, in the field. And there's a barn house that has shelter and protection. There's a storm that's coming. There's something severe that's about to happen. And the farmer's going out saying, come in. He's trying to pull the mule saying, come in before the hurricane comes, before the storm comes to take you over. Come in now. And the mule just stands there and says, no way. I'm not moving. I'm not going. And the farmer finally says, okay, I'm done. And he walks in with the other animals that will go with him into the safety of that barn house. And the other animals that were outside are destroyed. It's exactly what happened with Noah. Come into the safety of the ark before the rains and the floods come. And if you do not, you'll be swept away. So David says, come now. Come now. Have understanding, have wisdom, and draw near to God. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. The sorrows of the wicked are multiplied, but the one who trusts in the Lord, who runs to him for shelter, loving kindness. We've looked at that word many times this summer, hesed, the, the covenant-keeping love that God lavishes upon us. Um, we've defined it when, when the one from whom you have the right to deserve nothing, you have the right to get nothing from, lavishes everything upon you. That's hesed love. And David says the sorrows of the wicked multiply, but God's loving kindness surrounds you it takes care of you like verse seven you surround me with songs of deliverance you are surrounded god protects you so if you were to live in the lord's forgiveness and in the joy of his forgiveness you must allow guilt to do its job and lead you to confession and repentance you must act quickly in confession and repentance act today today is the day of salvation come now come quickly And once you've done that, verse 11, number three, you must be glad and rejoice. You must be glad and rejoice. If you're to live in the Lord's forgiveness and the joy of his forgiveness, point number three, you must be glad and rejoice. These are commands that David gives. They're in the imperative. Verse 11, be glad. That's command number one in the Lord. And rejoice. That's command number two, you righteous ones. And shout for joy. That's command number three. All of you who are upright in heart. What is David saying? Allow guilt to do its job and then move on. Once you have confessed your sin, once you have repented, let guilt do its job and then throw it away. Tim Keller says joy is the marker of justified persons. Joy should be our marker because our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. This is where Satan loves to come in. Guilt does its job in the life of a believer drawing them to the throne, drawing them to the cross, drawing them for grace. They receive the grace. They receive the pardon. Sin is forgiven. Iniquity is done away with. And as they leave, thinking that they've left that burden at the cross, Satan rushes in, picks up that burden and just keeps following you with it, right? He just keeps walking behind you saying, but what about this? What about everything you've done? And this is where we tend as believers to wallow in our own self-pity. To say, Look at what I've done. If people only knew, look at everything that I am, look at this. We we give the baton of our sin, as it were, to God and say, Deal with this. And Satan loves to come in and say, Can I take that and hand it back? Let guilt do its job and then move on. Throw it away. Let God deal with it and don't let Satan bring it back up. That's why the words of the song are so helpful. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. God knows exactly what you've done in your life and God has dealt with it at the cross in Jesus Christ. Satan loves to remind you and God says, please celebrate this morning the forgiveness that you have. Celebrate. We must be glad. We must rejoice because our sin, though it was once concealed, though it was once hidden, though we had deceit, though we decided not to confess it, God's hand of, of uh, guilt, that guilt that he brings, God's hand that was heavy upon us has worked in us to bring us to a place to say, yes, I have sinned. And I need to confess, just like David did in Psalm 51, like we studied last week. And you confess, and you turn, and you repent, and you find forgiveness. You act quickly, and now you can be glad and rejoice. Now you can be glad and rejoice. What's the prerequisite for finding this forgiveness and finding this joy? You have to acknowledge your sin. You have to confess it. You have to have a spirit of humility and a spirit without deceit. Why do we need to confess sin? Because it is a personal affront against God. It's an insult to God. It's a slap in God's face. And God doesn't just overlook your sin. He wouldn't be righteous if he did that. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. What's the blessing that we have? It's the blessing that the God of the universe looks upon us and says, You are clean. You realize that God the Father looks upon us and sees us as righteous as Jesus. Right now. We look around and we go, I'm sure not looking like that. We're covered, for those of you who are saved, you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, what do we do in conclusion? Admit your sin today. Confess it. Call it what it is. Call it what God calls it. Turn to Jeremiah. We'll end here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 12 The beauty of our savior is that he says come now come return now go proclaim these words toward the north and say return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger because I am gracious, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. How do we get that? Verse 13. Acknowledge your iniquity. Acknowledge your iniquity and return today. Today. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Acknowledge your sin. Turn. Return to the Lord today. Today. David used three words for sin, for offense against God, transgression, sin, iniquity. And then he gives us three better words than that, forgiven, covered, and God doesn't impute your iniquity. And he does that because Jesus offered three even better words at the cross. It is finished, paid in full. David Wells says, Christ died for our sins. He died for us, he died in our place, and he died for our benefit. He absorbed the judgment that should have fallen on us. Jared Wilson says, Christian, the one who knows you best, all of your secrets, all of your sins, all of your cravings, all of your failings, loves you the most forever. God loves you the most forever. And I love this passage in Jeremiah 32. Go to verse 40. This is the passage about the new covenant. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will do it. And he did it through Jesus. And I will not turn away from them. Even though they turn from me, I will not turn away from them, but I will call them home. I will do good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I love that. God's going to capture us. God's going to captivate us. And then God's going to place within us the fear of himself so that we won't leave ultimately and i will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul it's the promise that you have this morning and that's why david commands us this morning rejoice be glad shout for joy so that's what i want to do kind of a last say i want us to stare at our sin at god's holiness at our sin in light of his holiness and see the provision made for our sin at the cross. And then I want us to shout and be glad with rejoicing because of what our Savior has done. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has paid in full what we could never have paid. And I pray that as we sing to you now, we would do so as those who have been redeemed. That we would see the price the heavy price that was paid for our forgiveness, and that we would be glad in the fact that you have removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. You have paid our debt in full and have offered us newness of life. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you for it. You came from heaven.